so good. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Good morning to those of you that are here with me in Auditorium 1, those across the way in Auditorium 2, and those in Auditorium 3 online watching us in uh, whatever social media uh, outlet you are, uh, are looking at, Facebook Live, uh, YouTube, um, Netflix, Amazon Prime, wherever. But anyway, we're glad you're joining with us. We're in a, a summer series that we've entitled Disciple, and I have come to see that uh, this series has come at uh, a crucial time in our culture and in our country. I mean, with all the chaos going on politically and socially, with all the injustice and the dishonesty and the deception and hypocrisy and violence, and I'm not going to rehearse any of that. If you've got eyes to see and ears to hear, you know what I'm talking about. But with everything going on right now in our country, the question for the church is this, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus at such a time as this? What does it mean to follow Jesus in the midst of all this? What does it mean to think like Jesus and to act like Jesus and become like Jesus in this culture that's permeated by all kinds of different opinions and persuasions about what's going on? This past week, I ran across a definition of a disciple from Dallas Willard, and I thought that he just nailed it. And here's Dallas Willard's definition of a disciple. A disciple is a person who's decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do, to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things. Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry forward on their decision to follow Jesus. I love that because in these troubling days, the most important thing that you and I can be focusing on is learning how to do what Jesus said to do and to be constantly revising what we're doing uh, to carry through on our decision to follow Jesus. Now, so how do disciples learn to do what Jesus said to do? Well, the most basic answer to that question is what we've been going back to uh, every single week, and that is uh, what we've been illustrating through this triangle about what discipleship is all about. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to orient all of your life, to constantly be revising your affairs around these three goals to be with Jesus, to live in community with other disciples, and then to be on mission, to carry Jesus' message forward in the world. Life with Jesus, life in community, life on mission. And we've been working through those three things over the summer, uh, doing three messages on each one, and we are in week two of what it means to live on mission as the people of God. Now, last week, Jim kicked off the on mission angle of the triangle, which, by the way, if you missed that message, it was really, really good. So go back and make sure and, and give it a listen. But this was the question that he asked last week, and that is, what is it? mean to be a disciple on mission? And to begin answering that question, he gave us five pictures from uh, Scripture and five responses to those pictures to get us headed in the right direction. And it really was a good message. Did I say that? You need to go back and watch it if you haven't seen it. And, and, and so this week, I'm going to continue to answer that question. What does it look like to be an on-mission disciple? Uh, bringing the answer down uh, one more level. And I'm going to give you four pictures and two responses to those pictures. So now, 
Again, last week, Jim helped us see that the word mission is a purpose word. It's about a story with a why. The question is, what is God's why? What is God's mission? What is God's purpose? And I loved his answer from Habakkuk 2.14, that God's purpose is that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. That's the why beyond all whys, that God's glory would be seen and enjoyed and celebrated among all the peoples of the earth. That's so good. So the why of missions is the glory of God, meaning that as the people of God, we live our lives in such a way to make much of God, to make much of his grace, to make much of his goodness and his greatness, basically to make God look good. You know, when you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You're praying that God's name and that God's character, his goodness, his grace, his glory, would be known and exalted in all the earth. That's what hallowed mean, hallowed. Me, but may your name be known and exalted in all the earth. And what you're praying for is the fulfillment of Habakkuk 2.14. Did you know that? So the why of mission is the glory of God. Now, before we get to my first picture, let me say one more thing that's foundational to the on-mission angle of the triangle. There's the why of mission, and then there's the who of mission. And of course, they're both, they're directly related to one another, but we need to think about mission both ways, as a why and a who. God is the who of mission. God is a missionary God. Mission or missions does not begin with the command that you and I should go do something. First and foremost, the who of mission is God, not you. Mission starts with who God is. It flows out of his very being. It flows out of God's life. God's mission with humanity began in the garden in Genesis 1 at creation, and then things go awry, and after the fall, God goes after humanity again through Abraham and then through Israel. And what God wants for Israel is that all people will know and enjoy and celebrate his glory, and they would see that glory put on display in a nation that follows God. But the problem is God's people are constantly trying to find glory apart from God. So then God comes after people again because of Israel's failure. He comes after them again in Jesus. And we see the mission of God in the New Testament as the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, and the Spirit sends the church. So from Genesis to Revelation, God is a missionary God. That's who God is by nature. And that means that the starting place for a conversation about mission is not how do we get more people into heaven. The starting place is who is God and how do we image and mirror and walk out the likeness of what God is like in our daily lives. Now, Christopher Wright, uh, in his great book, The Mission of God, which which is, is the best thing that I've ever read about the mission of God as it is unfolded in the big story of the Bible. It's a long book. It's 535 pages, but this is the best thing I've ever read about the mission of God and how you and I join and participate in it. And even though it's long, it's not a hard read. It's a pretty easy read and to get your head around. You can, it's easy to get your head around. I love Chris Wright's 
most basic definition of mission. He says that mission is participation in the life of God. Mission is participation in the life of God. Mission is when we participate in who God is and what God is up to in the world. So what's God up to in the world? I mean, his purpose is to fill the earth, that one day he would fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. But what does that actually look like fleshed out? So take your Bible, paper or digital, and find your way to Genesis chapter 12, or you can just listen as I read and amplify the passage for you. So let's put the picture. Here's the picture we're looking at. The first picture, God's plan has always been to have a people through whom he would bless the world. God's plan has always been that he would have a people through whom he would bless the world. Now, most Bible scholars refer to Genesis chapter 12 as the backbone of the Bible because in Genesis 12, we hear God give us and tell us his plan for winning back this world that's in rebellion against him. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Now the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, Go from your country and your people and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will, what? Bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a, what? A blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you I will curse, and through you, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the people of God start right here with Abraham, whose descendants, his family, his descendants become the nation of Israel, and then after Jesus' death and resurrection, the boundary line between Jews and non-Jews is erased so that you have a racially diverse family that you and I are now wrapped up in. So the people of God are a family, but we're not just any kind of family. Family. We are a family that is specifically called by God in the language of Genesis 12 to bless the world, to be a blessing. Notice the pattern. I will bless you, and then in turn, you will be a blessing. Then in the next stanza, whoever blesses you, I will bless, and in turn, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So we, as the people of God, are a conduit. We're a channel. We're agents of God's blessing in the world. So what is the blessing? Well, the blessing is that we, as the visual representation of the glory of God on earth, that we, as the visual demonstration of what it looks like to participate in the life of God, that we would draw people in to knowing and loving and enjoying and celebrating and participating in the life of God as well. In other words, the blessing is God himself, knowing God himself. So we, as the people of God, stand at the interface between the creator and the creation, and God wants to bring blessing, healing, and restoration to all of creation. It's important to realize that the story doesn't end with souls in heaven singing Amazing Grace for all eternity. That's not the end of the story. The story ends in a city here on earth with human beings ruling with Jesus over the world and with the whole earth 
filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. So Genesis 12 is the beginning of redemption. In Genesis 12, God starts to put the world back together, first through Abraham, then through Israel, and then through Jesus, and then through his spirit-empowered church. And finally, in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22, we see a new heaven and a new earth full of the glory of God and the life of God. That's the storyline of the Bible. The storyline of the Bible is the mission of God. The mission of God is the storyline of the Bible. Now, the important thing to see in all of this is that God has planned to bring healing and restoration to the world through his people. His plan is to have a people that put his glory on display. You need to get that. I will bless you, so you will be a blessing. So Israel was always a means to an end. Or put another way, the point of Israel was never Israel. It was always for God to bless all the peoples of the earth through Israel. Again, if you follow the storyline from Abraham to Israel to Jesus and the church, nothing has changed. So I would argue that the point of the church isn't the church. It's for God to bless the world through the church. And, and we need to think about that for us. The point of Fellowship Greenville is not Fellowship Greenville. We are a means to an end. The point is for God to bless Greenville and Simpsonville and Malden and Spartanburg and the upstate through Fellowship Greenville. So picture number one, God is always, God's plan has always been to have a people through whom he would bless the world. Now, that all sounds nice, but here's the deal. Picture number two, all through the Old Testament scriptures, the people of God lose sight of their mission to be a blessing to the world. All through the scriptures, God's people lose sight of their mission to be a blessing to the world. And so what happens is everything kind of gets inverted and the people of God grow inward and exclusive. And in the Old Testament, in story after story, the drift is away from the mission of God to bless the world and towards, uh, you know, like apathy, entitlement, fear, insecurity, isolation, separation, anger, injustice, racism, idolatry. The drift is toward anything but being a blessing. Now, one of Jim's pictures last week came from Isaiah chapter 42, and I want to take a look at that picture again because, you know, sometimes when you go into a museum or something and you stare at a picture, the more you stare at it, the more you see in it. And so that, I think that's the case in Isaiah 42. And, and he and I are just kind of skimming the top of these things anyway. But uh, Isaiah 42, if you ever read the Old Testament, then you know that it's the prophets who over and over and over again call Israel back to her center. And that's what's going on in Isaiah chapter 42. And this is just one of many examples in Isaiah. But the nation of Israel is a train wreck. She's off course. She's off target. She has no idea that she's spinning out of control. The nation is full of idolatry and injustice. And I love what God says in Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says the Lord, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Now notice, the God of all creation gives breath and life to all the people of the earth, not just the Jewish people of Isaiah's day, 
all people, every ethnicity, every race, every nation. So God is still very much focused on Israel being a blessing to all the peoples of the world. So he addresses Israel. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I've called you, Israel, in righteousness. In other words, I've called you to live in a right relationship with me and the peoples of this world. I will take you by the hand. Now remember, they've, they've, they've been disobedient. They've walked away, and he's, God's going to take them by the hand, kind of like a, a dad goes after a little boy who's been rebellious, and he takes his son by the hand, and he says, come on, buddy, uh, you, you know, you messed up, you're off track here, but let me help you back. And so God says, says, I will take you by the hand, I will keep you, now look at this, and I will give you as a covenant for the people. Covenant, that's the language of the Abrahamic covenant. That's the language of Genesis 12. What are, what's their mission? To be a light to the nations, all nations, to be a blessing to all the nations, and to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and to release from prison those who sit in darkness. Isaiah is calling Israel back to God, calling them back to mission, to be a light to the Gentiles so that all non-Jewish people in the world can come to know God. So God's plan has always been uh, to have a people through whom, whom he would bless the world. The problem is, though, that all through the scriptures, God's people lose sight of their mission to be a blessing in the world. And even though God sent the prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet, to call his people back to mission, they still drift off course. Now, so we're Abraham, Israel, Jesus. Jesus picks up on all of this in Matthew chapter 5, and that's where we get our third picture. The third picture is this, that Jesus brought, brought us the blessing that Israel failed to bring. Jesus brought us the blessing that Israel failed to bring. And so Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. But at that time, it was just called, Jesus is up on the mountain and he's preaching. Come on, that was funny. I mean, a little bit of love here, a little bit of love. Okay. Uh, so Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus' manifesto for how his disciples are to live in the new reality that Jesus called the kingdom of God. And notice that Jesus starts with blessing the people. Chapter 5, verse 3 uh, just listen, you don't have to turn there. Here's the opening line. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And then he goes on. Now, this language is straight out of Genesis chapter 12. Jesus is doing what Israel was supposed to do all along. He's blessing the world. And if you read all the way down through that list, he's blessing the least likely people in the society of that day. Now, if we skip on down to chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus goes on. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, what does that sound like? Well, the light of the world language comes right from the prophet Isaiah. We just read that in Isaiah what? What chapter? 42. All right, some of you are hanging with me. All right, but, and then this reference, so the light of the world. 
Jesus is calling these people the light of the world, these Jew Jewish people. Now, the reference to a town built on a hill, that's a metaphor for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is literally uh, built on top of a hill. And I've been there. And when you go there with me uh, next spring, uh, when we go to Israel, you'll realize that there's not a flat place or a, fat, a flat space in the entire city. And if you go there and you walk around there, you'll have awesome calf muscles. I can assure you that. So when the crowd heard this, they would, they would have gone, oh, he's, he's talking the city on the hill. Oh, he's talking about Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Israel. So Jesus is saying, listen, Israel, don't forget who you are. You're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill for everybody to see. And he goes on and says, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see what is the light. The light is blessing. The light is your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So how do outsiders experience God's blessing from God's people? It's through the good that we do for others. So, look at it. So they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. And again, this is exactly what Isaiah was calling Israel to do years before. Jesus is calling Israel back to their true center. The thing is, he is the center. And that's what he wants them to see. And he's saying, don't forget who you are. You're the light of the world. And he's blessing them. And he's saying to them, your mission is to bless others so that all people might see the glory of God, the life of God in you. And, uh, as you know how the story goes, they, Israel rejects Jesus, and then he has to give his life to bring the blessing to the nations. But Jesus' words still ring true today. He says to us, hey, don't let your church, don't let your small group, don't let your life drift away from this mission that God has called you to, to be a blessing to the world. He says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. He says, as I have blessed you, you bless others. As I have loved you, love others. As I have forgiven you, forgive others. He's saying, don't drift away from that mission, from my mission. Don't drift away towards apathy or laziness or inwardness or whatever it is. You're a family. Yes, you're a family, but you're not just any kind of family. You're a family that's called to be a blessing uh, to the world. So Jesus fulfilled Genesis 12. He fulfilled the role Israel was supposed to play in the world. Through his sinless life, his sacrificial death for our sins, by rising from the dead, ascending back into heaven, and sending his spirit to empower the church, Jesus has blessed us so that we will be a blessing to others. So one more time, let's review where God's plan has always been to have a people through whom he had blessed the world. The problem is all through the Bible, God's people continually lose sight of their mission. And Jesus has come, and he's brought the blessing that Israel failed to bring, and he's blessed us, so we bless others. Now, what I'm about to tell you is I would bet that most of you have never heard. If you read your Bible, you've read it. In fact, if you have been reading along with us in the CBR journal, our community Bible reading journal, you read it recently, but you probably just read right over it. But I would almost guarantee that even if you have heard anything about what I'm about to tell you, 
I would bet that you've never heard it in a message or a talk about what it means to participate in the mission of God. Now, here's, here's my fourth picture. The primary way you live out God's mission of bringing blessing to the world is in your sphere of influence. The primary way that you carry forward the message of Jesus and the message of God's blessing the world is in your sphere of influence. Now, let me just put it this way. When I read my New Testament, I see that there are at least two kinds of disciples. Or maybe a better way to say it is that different disciples are called to do different things. Different disciples, different callings. That might be my next book. Different children, different needs, different disciples, different callings. Um, God calls some people, like these frontline missionaries and, and most of, a, a lot of our missionaries that are overseas missionaries, He calls some people to go beyond their borders. And even in the Old Testament, you see God calling people like uh, the prophet Jonah, who was called to leave his home and his hometown and to travel to a far off place. Uh, to deliver God's message. And in the New Testament, you've got the 12 apostles, and you have Paul and Philip and Barnabas and Silas and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and Timothy and Titus, lots of people who leave their homes and hometowns and go to far off places. People from Cyprus go to Antioch and start a multi-ethnic church there. God called people like these people and many, many, many others to take the blessing of the gospel to other lands and to other people groups. But in all of those towns and villages, there were others who stayed in those house churches that were planted and they lived out their faith in their communities, in their spheres of influence. And as you know, I mean, the, the, the letters of the New Testament, their testimonies to whole congregations of disciples in Corinth and Galatia, and Ephesus, and Colossae, and Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Laodicea, I mean, most of which did not, most of the people in those house churches in those cities did not become traveling itinerant preacher-type disciples. I, I mean, I think you know this, but you don't have to cross large bodies of water to be a missionary, Right? Well, we know that's true because in all the letters that Paul wrote to these churches, he gives specific instructions about carrying Jesus' mission forward through their local churches, in their communities, in their spheres of influence, in the midst of a growing persecution that was coming against Christians. And those instructions about being on mission in their spheres of influence, again, I bet you, you've never, you, you haven't heard what I'm about to tell you before. And I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't know if I believe this. I mean, what about the Great Commission? That's our marching orders, right? Well, yes, of course it's our mar marching orders. But since you brought it up, let's just look at it. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, the first word there, go, is not actually a command. It is a participle, and it's more accurately translated, as you go. As you go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, get them into local churches, and teach them what I taught you. As you go, some go beyond the borders of their homes and families and their jobs. In those days, some went out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then on to the ends of the earth. Others go 
to those within their spheres of influence. That is, as you go to work, as you go to school, as you go to your neighbors, as you raise your families, as you meet new people, be a blessing to those you come in contact with. Let your light shine so that people see how good and great and gracious God is in your life. Hear me. The turning the world upside down witness of early Christians mostly happened in the context of markets and neighborhoods within their spheres of influence. Now, let me show you this from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter. And I want you to notice how Paul talked about the missional influence of the local churches in Thessalonica. This is from the New International Version. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, Now about your love for one another, we don't need to write you, for you yourself have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family through Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so even more, to excel more in loving others. Now look at this. And... To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So Paul writes to these house churches in Thessalonica. It's getting more and more difficult for the followers of Jesus to live out their faith, first of all, because of the persecution from local Jews. And then, uh, by the time this letter is being written, their, uh, their, their non-Christian neighbors and the political authorities are beginning to harass them because of their belief in Jesus. And Paul begins, first of all, he begins by commending them that because they have an evident love for one another, a love that must have been visible and tangible Love is blessing. They are blessing others through their love with tangible good deeds. Uh, all of it comes together here. And, and it had to be visible and tangible because Paul's heard about it from other, other believers. Now, he, so he says, first of all, excel still more in loving each other and loving your neighbors. Then Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work hard to provide for yourself. This is what we instructed you to do when we were with you. In other words, what Paul says right there, this isn't a one-off kind of instruction. This, he, Paul has given this, them this same instruction more than once, and he will again in 2 Thessalonians. I'll, I'll, we'll look at that in a minute. This was how he talked about a, a local church being on mission, missional living. This is missional living. Have you ever heard this before? I mean, anything like this? Missional living is make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Aspire to live a quiet life. In other words, to aspire to something means you make it your aim. You make it your goal. You make it your passion. I mean, is that not the strangest thing you've ever heard? Like in a message on mission, I mean, like, hey, Charlie, what's your personal mission statement? Well, I tell you, I've, I, 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 my personal mission statement is I, I'd say my goal in life is to lead a quiet life, uh, mind my own business, and just work, it, work hard at my job. <laughs> it's like, 
You're kidding. No, I mean, the, I mean, I've even got it in my home. I got this on my wall. No, I, I don't. But I ran across this and I thought this was so good that I think this should be like cross-stitched. You know, remember that? On, and, and anyway, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. Work with your hands. Now, working with your hands goes hand in hand with living a quiet life. Uh, by the way, you ever told somebody to mind their own business? Comes right out of the Bible right here. I'm, I'm serious. I mean, so Paul is, you know, and if you're talking to a non-Christian, they tell you to mind your own business. because You know, you're quoting scripture. But anyway, so Paul is not saying, listen, he's not saying live a secluded life. He's not saying live an isolated life because no, over and over in the New Testament, we're told to love one another and accept one another and comfort one another and serve one another and care for one another and be devoted to each other and, uh, and, and, and uh, correct or exhort one another. And as we looked at in one of our earlier messages on community, we are to live in intentionally intrusive relationships with one another so we don't drift away. But Paul makes it clear what he means when he brings this subject up again in his second letter to the church in Thessalonica, where he writes in 2 Thess 3, 11, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. So what Paul is saying is don't be a busybody. Don't give your life to gossip. Don't meddle in other people's affairs. Don't get caught up in things that you can't do anything about. Don't get overly involved in all the talk that's going on around you, especially if it detracts from making much of God's glory and grace. So it makes me think, like, how, does, how, how would that apply to social media? Ah, too convicting. Let's move on. Uh, well, not too fast. I mean, think about it. In a world of Facebook and Instagram and, and, and Twitter, it, it's easy to get wrapped up in everybody else's business. It's easy to get wrapped up in lots of things that can end up dominating our thought life and our emotional life, isn't it? Now, I can't tell you what, what this, this passage here means for you in social media. But if the most important thing that a disciple can do in these troubled times, if the most important thing we can do is to learn from Jesus what he said to do, then we have to take these words seriously. We've got to figure out what they mean for us. So again, Paul says, excel still more in loving others. Make it your life goal to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work hard at whatever, whatever God has given you to do. Verse 12, here's the missional component so that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders. So do you see how these are missional instructions? Paul is describing how called to stay-at-home disciples of Jesus should live in a way that wins the respect of their non-Christian neighbors. How called to stay-at-home disciples let their light shine through the good that they do to each other and their neighbors, how called to stay at home disciples are to be a blessing to others, which will give them opportunities to talk with them about Jesus. I mean, you ever heard anything like this? I've never heard it in my life. I've not even thought about it until I was reading through First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy, and I kept coming, wait, wait, didn't he say that before? And I'd go back, and he said that here, and now he's saying it again. I mean, th 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 this is profound. 
Some disciples are called to travel beyond their borders for Jesus, and others are called to stay at home and be on mission for Jesus in their spheres of influence. It's not a first class and a second class thing. This is how different disciples bring different blessings to different places to people who don't know God. And again, some bring blessing by taking the gospel to other nations. Others bring blessing by living out the gospel in the nations in which they live. Both are equally important and both are equally needed. Now, I want to look at one more passage of Scripture that says the same thing, but in a different way. All right, we're still with a new international version here, but uh, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, and look at verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I'll put it on the screen for you. Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, and he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So Paul instructs Pastor Timothy to have his church pray for godless leaders, and he's, notice he says this is of first importance. I urge you, first of all, to pray. Now, what's implied here is that these prayers focus on asking God to work in the hearts of their godless leaders so that the followers of Jesus can live, look at it, peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. He says, look at it, this is good and pleases God. That is living for believers, disciples, to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness pleases God. Why? Because he can use it to win others to Christ. Meaning God wants people from every nation to hear the gospel and see the gospel lived out for him. God wants, look at it, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And this is not a Calvinist or Arminian thing. This is he wants all people living in all lands. These are churches that are spread out all over the place with all kinds of ethnic groups and races and tongues. He wants all people to be exposed to the gospel so they can trust Christ and be saved. Now, basic, here's the thing. Basically, Paul is saying, pray that the governing authorities leave you alone. That's what he's praying. Pray that they leave you alone so you can carry the message of Jesus forward in your world unhindered. That's what he's saying, which when you think about it might be a good way to think about how you should vote. Just a thought. So when Paul gives instruction to local churches and local church pastors, he describes the mission of the local church in the most simple, non-flashy, no banners waving, no souped-up mission statement kind of way. He says, here's the way that I want you to live on mission with God. Just love others and, and, and go, go the second and the third and fourth. I mean, excel in loving others and make it your goal to live peaceful, quiet lives and all godliness. And godliness is putting 
making much of God, putting God on display, and holiness. Don't get wrapped up in, with other people's affairs. Drill down on the work that God's given you to do, uh, of, of, of your job, your, your raising your kids, that you might win the respect of outsiders and that they might come to see God's glory and grace in you and that they might come to a knowledge of the truth that is in Jesus. I mean, what could be more simple and profound as that? Everyone in this room can do that if, if, go back to Willard's definition, if we are constantly revising our affairs around our decision to follow Jesus and put his life on display. So, big picture, four, 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 four pictures now. God's plan's always been to have a people through whom he would bring blessing to the world. Problem is, God's people drift off course. They drift away from the mission. Jesus came to get the mission back on course, all right? He, and the way, the primary way you live out God's mission of bringing blessing to the world the most of all of us in here, most of all, some of you will go on short-term mission trips, and we really encourage you to do that. Some of you will go with mission agencies like Frontline and go into other countries and Berlin and all this kind of thing. But for the most of us, most of you in this room, you're not going to just pick up and leave and go to another country and preach the gospel. This is for you. The primary way you live out God's mission of bringing blessing to the world is in your sphere of influence. Those are our four pictures. And now two responses. Response number one, figure out the answer to this question. What would Jesus do if he were me? Now, uh, years ago, you remember that there was the uh, WWJD bracelets, like what would Jesus do? And I love the heart behind that question, but this is a better question. This is a better question. What would Jesus do if he were me? What would he do if he were me? Now, let me quote Dallas Willard one more time. Willard writes, as a disciple of Jesus, I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were me. I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I'm learning how to do everything I do in like manner to that which he did all he did. I need to be able to lead my life as he would lead it if he were me. The question I have to figure out, and you have to figure out, and this is very personal to each one of us because the answer, how you answer it, how I answer it, it's, it's going to be different. But the question is, how would Jesus live my life if he were me? I thought about that driving in this morning, like I'm driving pretty fast and I'm in a hurry, I'm going... How would Jesus be driving to church? Like, would he be driving like this? Nope. Mm, so I slowed down. <laughs> but what would Jesus do if he were me? And that, again, that question takes some figuring out. It takes some thought. It takes creativity and maybe some input from other people, close friends in your community who are serious about living as a disciple and they're trying to figure out the same thing. Now think about it. What would Jesus do if he were me? Like, what would Jesus do if he were my gender? What would Jesus do if he were my age or my stage in life? How would Jesus live if he were my ethnicity, my race? How would Jesus live if he, if he had my education or my lack of education? How would Jesus 
live if he had my experience in life, good or bad? If he had, if he had my upbringing, how, how would he live my life? What would Jesus do if he had my network of family and friends? What would Jesus do if he lived in my apartment or in my condo or in my home? If he had my neighbors? See, see what would Jesus do if he were me right here, right now? So response number one is figure out the answer to that question. Now, for sure, he would be about God's mission of bringing blessing. He'd be about bringing blessing. He would be about loving others and serving others and caring for others and doing good and wanting to believe the best in others. But how those things translate into your gender, your age, your stage in life, your job, your family, your singleness, all comes down to how you answer that question, what would Jesus do if he were me? How would he teach this class if you're a teacher? How would he conduct business at the, at the bank or in the small business? How would he relate to the employees? How would he relate to a boss? Those are all the questions. That is a great question. What would Jesus do if he were me? All right, that, that's, uh, that's response one. Response two is this. Talk about Jesus in your daily conversations. In other words, live your faith out audibly. Live your faith out audibly loud. Now, just to clarify something, there is a famous quote by St. Francis Assisi, which uh, many of you have heard before, and the quote is, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, many of you have heard that before, but a lot of people are saying now that St. Francis never said that, and if he did say it, it's just plain wrong. I mean, it's just not true because the gospel, by definition, is good news. That's what the word means, good news. It is, by definition, a message that you pass on to others. You pass on to the world, and that means at some point in time, you've got to actually tell people about Jesus, not just like mow their lawn and take them a meal. You know what I mean? I mean, yes, of course, doing good is extremely important. <laughs> this whole message up to this point in time is about living your faith out visibly and tangibly. You gotta show the glory, uh, show God's work in your life by being a light, and the light is good works. It's clear. It's right there in Scripture. But talking about Jesus doesn't take a back seat to doing good. Disciples aren't just do-gooders. They're truth-tellers. Now, isn't it true that we talk about what we love? Isn't it true that we talk about what we're passionate about? What we care about, what we are passionate about, is what defines us as people. So think about the conversations you had with people over the last week, especially with those outside the church, outside the faith. Let's just get super practical here. How many times did Jesus come up in your conversations with people outside the church this last week? How many conversations centered around the person of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not asking this to make anybody feel guilty. I'm, getting, I'm, trying, I'm asking this to make you think. Now, ask yourself a second question. Do I not talk about Jesus because I'm ashamed of him, or even worse, because I don't even think about him till next Sunday? 
How much do you talk about Jesus versus how, how much you talk about your problems? How much do you talk about Jesus versus how much you talk about politics and all the garbage going on in our world today? How much do you talk about Jesus versus how much you talk about Netflix or movies or Facebook posts or YouTube videos? I mean, think about it. How can we be a blessing to others when our conversations center more around these things than around Jesus? Now, I, I'm not talking about talking about Jesus in obnoxious, pushy, self-righteous ways. I'm talking about in the course of your daily conversations with people outside the faith, do you ever just think about dropping little lines into those conversations like, yeah, you know, I was, I was praying about that the other day, and then you just go right on. Or, uh, well, you know, as hard as all this is, Jesus tells me that I have to forgive that person, and, and so I'm not holding what she said about me against her. Or, man, I, yeah, that is really disturbing, but I tell you, for me, my faith in Christ carries me uh, through things like that. And don't get me wrong, I, it, that, that really bothers me. It's, it's terrible, it's terrible, but God doesn't want my heart to be dominated by anger and anxiety. Like, you see what I'm getting at? I, I'm saying just talk about Jesus as a not natural part of your daily life. Let it be perfectly natural to drop into any conversation about how good and gracious Jesus is to you, how great and mighty God is as the one who is in control of everything and overall. I mean, think about the impact a local church would have in its community if the people in that church were just having conversations where it was just as natural to drop Jesus in here and there along the way as it would be to drop sports in or, or homemaking or whatever your kids in. Think about what an impact the local church would have in its community if the people in that church were constantly revising their affairs around passionately pursuing life and mission with Jesus. Wow, it could turn a city upside down. Can you handle one more Dallas Willard quote? You can tell I've, been, I've got every book that Willard ever wrote. Um, he's a philosopher, Christian guy. He, he died a, a, a while back. But uh, here's what he says. He says, there is a special evangelistic work to be done, of course, and there are special callings to it. But if those in the churches are really enjoying the fullness of life, they are really enjoying participating in the life of God, then evangelism will be unstoppable and largely automatic. Is that the most powerful thing you ever heard? The local assembly or church, for its part, can then become, listen, an academy where people throng from the surrounding community to learn how to live. It will be a school of life for a disciple is but a pupil or a student where all aspects of that life seen in the New Testament records are practiced and then mastered under the leadership of those who themselves have mastered them through practice. He says only by taking this, he's talking to churches and church leaders, only by taking this as our immediate goal can we intend to carry out the Great Commission. It's a beautiful picture. Now, I know it's the ideal. 
not, not reality. And if you don't believe me, just go on Facebook and clearly we're not there yet. But what if we as Fellowship Greenville and all, and all the other followers of Jesus in our city, what if we were known? What if people said these kinds of things about Christians? Like, oh yeah, those people at Fellowship Greenville, they're, they're a little bit different, but different in a good way. I mean, they don't live frantic lives and, and they don't get caught up in the rat, lot, rat race and they're not digitally addicted. They're, they're, they're loving and they're, they're humble. When you talk with them, they look you in the, in the eye and they really are they really do care about what you, what you say and what you think and what's going on in your life. And even sometimes if they don't agree with you, they love you anyway. They live in community and they practice hospitality and they're generous with their, with their money and with their homes and with their possessions. And you know, it's, it's rare to see anybody in that community that's lonely because they live with each other in such loving ways. Oh, now, sure, they, they deal with the pains and difficulties of life like the rest of us do. And they deal with the pain of, that comes from tough, some of them from tough backgrounds, but they're always focused on trying to become what God has created them to be. And they know what joy is and they know what peace is like. And they'll help you if you need help. They, they put on display a whole other way to live that honestly is attractive even though I haven't signed on to it yet, it's still very attractive. All that to say, don't underestimate the power of loving others. Don't underestimate the power of making it your ambition to live a peaceful, quiet life in all godliness and holiness. Don't underestimate the power of minding your own business and just constantly revising your affairs to follow Jesus, of working hard at whatever it is that God has given you to do. Don't underestimate the power of living as a disciple of Jesus in your sphere of influence and bringing the blessing of God to the people who live here in Greenville and surrounding areas and the upstate. Don't underestimate what God can and will do if we just do what Jesus says to do. Oh God, I pray that this would be true of us. I pray that this would become true of our church. You have blessed us with every heavenly blessing in Christ. May we be a people on mission with you to be a blessing to those we come in contact with every day. In Jesus' name, amen.